Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Hi, this is Mary from Las Vegas. And if you go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media, you can get exclusive podcasts, videos, and more, just like I do. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, TV. And this week, a Michigan oncologist rose to prominence and made a fortune with his new cancer treatments. But many of his patients weren't even sick. We'll talk about season two of Dr. Death. Plus, a new HBO documentary focuses on the work of a pioneering criminal psychiatrist. But her work remains controversial. We'll discuss crazy, not insane. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and weird catio aficionado, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, Rebecca. Yeah, we have a tree in our catio now. Oh, I know. It's weird. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. So, guys, guess what's back? Uh, What's back? COVID-19 is back, guys. (laughs) Some will say it never went away, Rebecca. (laughs) Never actually went away. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are in a pandemic, a full-blown pandemic, once again, all trapped in our homes. And I just want to check in with everyone. How y'all doing? Laura, um, you seem to be going a little crazy over there at your little home in Exeter, New Hampshire. Yeah. So we have been on lockdown. My fireman, Ken, has been in quarantine. He had an exposure. He's since tested negative, but he's still got another week of quarantine. And my son, obviously, is also on quarantine. I'm about ready to kill someone. Hmm. Um, But... I am adding some elements to the catio, which is a good outlet for me right now. Yeah. Do you ever get a building permit for that catio, Laura? You know what? It's funny that you say that because a couple people have come out my driveway and they've said, boy, that looks like a big structure. Did you get a building permit? I'm like, nah. It's yeah, not, it's not permanent. I it's mean, fine. You, you could you could technically just like take a tractor and haul it away from your house, right? It's not actually attached to. Your oh house. yeah, yeah. No, it's not attached to the house. No, it's it's totally cool. So we have a tree in there now. We uh, so Ken cut down a tree the other day that was like leaning on our house, and I was like, Ken, the cats could climb that tree. So we put it in the catio. Neighbor Dan is coming to assist with this project, but then I walked into it. So now I look like a cyclops while I'm trapped at home because I poked in the middle of my forehead on this damn tree. Laura, you know, you were just inviting termites into your home, right? By having a dead tree in a closed structure, like within two feet of your house. It's okay. It's fine. fine. It's fine. fine. It's very fun. It's very exciting. Kevin, have you seen pictures of Laura's catio? I have, yes. It it looks like a lanai. Yeah, I don't think the... (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like imagine you're in Florida. I don't you think have... the building <laughs> office in town needs to worry about it because if it's a problem, just one swift kick and the whole thing turns to a pile of toothpicks. But you're, you're real. It's like one of those lanai's, right? Like in Florida, they have those pools inside those weird like yeah. screen porch things. Yeah. No offense, Floridians, but those things are weird. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I have the fake like grass on the bottom too. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, Toby, how are you surviving the second huge wave of the pandemic? You doing all right? I'm supposed to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> Have you stocked uh, up your uh, your second fridge with shitty hamburgers again, so that you can eat the same thing for six months? No, I mean we've kind of we've kind of moved away from that. Thankfully, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of. I, I feel like we've been kind of doing the social distancing thing anyway. So it, it hasn't changed a whole lot recently other than I guess with my son being away at school and then when he's going to come back, you know, he's going to have to quarantine beforehand and, and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, it's just, I just staying busy. Hmm. It's been, the weather's been nice. So we've been oh able to be God. outside it's like, like 80 way degrees. more than normal. Yeah. I, I feel like our listeners, if they only were to follow the crime writers on weather forecast, <laughs> they would think we were just making it up. Cause one week we're like, Oh, it's so hot. This week I'm like, it's freezing. And now I'm like, Oh, it's so hot. It's November. It was like 80 degrees yesterday. Nice and mild. Yeah. Not nice. I mean, it's, it's fun. Except it's like, weather. It's sweater weather in Los Angeles right now. I went on a hike with the dogs today and picked like a hundred ticks off. Them. We got home. It's so gross. So, Kevin, I have a question for you before we move on. Sure. Um, I was hoping that during the dip in the pandemic, the haircut would finally happen. It's just never happened. No, my haircut has not happened. <sighs> you know it's bad when your very sloppy teenage son comes in the house and goes, what is going on with your hair? <laughs> yeah, like that motherfucker has the balls to say anything about a haircut. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Teddy. If you ever listen to this podcast, which you never will, yeah. your hair also... Pretty shitty. Right. Well, he, I mean, we both look like classic black and white movies. He looks like a racer head. I look like Gene Wilder from Young Frankenstein. Ooh. Oh, my. You should get cornrows and be like 10. <laughs> not, not long enough quite yet for well, that nice ponytail, but I guess I could do a little something. Uh. All right. Let's move on and record a podcast, shall we? Yep. Leading off. My internal medicine doctor said, you know, hey, I sent my mom to him. He's world-renowned. It's your choice, Patty, but I would go to him. Dr. Fareed Fada was Michigan's go-to oncologist with a growing practice that treated thousands of people in need of aggressive treatment or long-term chemotherapy. But clinicians who got a closer look at the medicines Fada was administering became suspicious. The maximum dose is anywhere between three to five cc's of fluid. And the nurse just pushes it in. It's supposed to go over like three to five seconds, not in an IV bag over an hour. Fada was diagnosing healthy people with cancer and billing insurance companies for unnecessary treatments. And he would drag out treatments for his real cancer patients long beyond the point the treatments could help them. Everything happened wrong. None of this is the way it was should have been. There wasn't a day that went by that I wouldn't say, oh, dear God, what have we done to my poor mother? Season two of Wondery's hit podcast, Dr. Death, returns with another cautionary tale from the world of healthcare. Host Laura Beal introduces us to a physician who bilked the system for tens of millions of dollars and didn't care if his patients were healthy 
or sick or even died. Spoiler alert, that's we are going to be Yeah, that's extra that sick. That would go when you're sick. Spoiler yeah. alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Dr. Death season 2. So if you want to remain spoiler-free for this true story that you could just look up on Wikipedia, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. It does cover a lot of what we discuss. What's that? Stuff that you probably could just go to the Wikipedia, the newspaper, to find out who did it. That's true. But this is a a very tight podcast. I mean, it promises to be six parts, but Kevin, it really is over in like four parts, right? Right. And they've teased... The next episode isn't even about this case. Yeah, it seems like it's <laughs> a bonus episode. Bonus episode of season one of Dr. Death. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think we were listening uh, almost at the same time with headphones on, and you said this was epi- end of episode four. You said... Is there anything more to this podcast? <laughs> and I said, yeah, there are two more episodes. But yeah, nope. your point was, by the time you got to the end of episode four, the story is it's over. wrapped up. It's done and dusted. Yes. So, Toby, Dr. Death is a different kind of true crime podcast brand. Obviously, Wondery is sort of known for launching these brands that sometimes turn into, you know, made for TV dramas or movies, etc. But this one is about medical malfeasance and, you know, fraud in the medical community. And I'm curious, do you think this case is a strong follow-up to the case that Dr. Death talked about in season one? What do you think, Toby? Uh, I don't think so. You know, this is just basically insurance fraud on like a huge scale, but it doesn't seem... You know, what was interesting about the first season was that, uh, and I'm not going to be able to remember his name, but that guy, I mean, he was nuts and he wasn't doing it for a reason. Like, it's pretty obvious that Dr. Fada's doing this for money, right? I mean, he's just, he's trying to accumulate money. The first season, that was not the thing. This guy just wanted to do surgeries that he was not qualified for. Uh, And so that was weird and interesting and that kind of carried you through because you're like, what the hell's going on? And then in this one, though, it just seems the scale is what's interesting, right? It's like what he's actually doing is tragic and criminal, but I'm sure that's not the only case of doctors doing this kind of thing, Yeah. but I'm sure they're doing it on a smaller scale. What would be interesting about this case was how was he able to get away with it for this long? Right. How did he not get exposed extremely quickly, given the number of patients he has. The fallout from that reporting for him professionally and personally was was rather remarkable. He mentioned to us that he was completely ostracized from inside his practice and in the medical community in that area because he had told on another doctor. They don't really spend much time going into that, right? It's it's more these stories, which are which are for the most part pretty poignant and and the people are are good interviews and stuff. But the case itself is just, you know, it was surprising to me that that's the best thing that they came up with for the second season. It's funny you talked about scale because it was like he was really scaling up at two. It's like he was doing all this. People were dying. And he was like, let's grow the business. <laughs> like he was like, how do we, how do we, sk-? it was very much like a startup that he was doing. What were you going to say, Kevin? Well, I think the appeal of this case is the breadth of it, you know, that it, it was so widespread, it affected so many people, that that's why the Dr. Death team thought that they should focus on this. But it doesn't have the twists and turns of a really good plot line. It's very linear, you know, for a six, really, what is called a four-part thing. And it's kind of obvious. Well, they right. say it. They're right there in the beginning. Well, I didn't even have to say that. If I, if you listen to the first 10 minutes and I said, what do you think happens? 
Uh, he's treating people for cancer who don't really have cancer. And that's essentially the whole story, yeah. right? I mean, there's there's not a lot of other things happening here. Well, in the end, I mean, I think they did a good job reporting what they had. Uh, it just sort of isn't a fertile ground for a really interesting Dr. Death story like season one. Now, Lara, Toby talked about how he went so long without getting caught. And, you know, I do think that there is an element here, and its podcast touches on it briefly, that not unlike law enforcement, there's like a code within the medical community. They don't rat on their own or something yeah. like that. But there are some heroes in this story. Uh, we have mm-hmm. a couple of whistleblowers. What do you think about the nurse who went for the job interview, plus uh, the office manager who was now a two-time whistleblower, had whistleblown before in a previous job? A colleague at work stepped into his office to speak with him in confidence. She said, where do I learn to become a whistleblower? And I says, well, you know, you just don't learn to become a whistleblower. And believe me, this is not what you want to wish on. It's hopefully it's you never have to. What do you think of these heroes of this story? Well, I think that these were obviously these were great people to have included as voices. You know, the office manager guy where he's talking about, you know, going forward with getting this information and figuring out what's going on and and, and going to the authorities. And by the way, I thought it was kind of weird. I looked this up. They wouldn't name how much he got in a settlement, yet it's in all the newspapers out where this happened. How so much did he get? Yeah, w- one point seven million. Wait, who, who got one point seven? George, George, the, the uh, office, yeah. the office manager. Good for you, George. Yeah. So, but good for him. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, this. You know, he so was I thought the real that victim that, in the case. No, he yeah, wasn't. I, well, I, <laughs> I know. well, okay, but I thought it was good that that we heard from his perspective because, as somebody who is like raging listening to this, and to say that like nothing happened in this case, like it did in season one, it obviously didn't happen to the same scale with people dying, but there were people getting sick and being made sick that now have permanent medical conditions because of these fake treatments he gave them. So people died, certain- Lara. That lady's one mother died and other people died. So there were there were reper- you know there were you know after effects uh, from from what he had um done to people. But then you know we had the nurse and I really I enjoyed her because you know sometimes I have a hard time keeping my mouth shut when I see something that I think is wrong and <laughs> same um, so when she was saying when she kept questioning and she's like going through her little shadowing day and she's like well wait why are you doing this we don't do this and and she kept butting heads with this other nurse that was there I was like good for you she she did file a complaint with right. the state and yep. the medical board Which and took it, like it, three years it, it took a, like more than a year didn't go anywhere and they talk about the state medical boards in different states being ranked of like who's the most activist and least activist you know who else was a doctor in michigan who larry nassar was oh a doctor in right michigan. right right yeah sort of the malfeasance uh of doctor apparently if you want to be a super shitty abusive or fraudulent doctor michigan is is the place to do it if this pet detective thing doesn't work out for laura i think she should put in an application and be in an Michigan. Invest- oh, in well, New Hampshire or wherever. <laughs> be an investigator. Do, for that. do job interviews for jobs that you don't really want, and then just question the people. Like, do you think she ever would have like gotten a secret hard? chopper? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. No. So, Toby, I have a question for you. Um, if you didn't think you were sick, but you were sent to an oncologist slash hematologist who gave you a diagnosis that you didn't believe was true like Patty, who we hear about in the podcast, what would you do? Would you stick with that doctor? Yeah, I was a little uncomfortable with that whole storyline 
because I think what most people would do would be get a second opinion. Patty felt fine. She was still taking fitness classes. And he's like, you're going to need a bone marrow biopsy right away. And I think that you may end up on chemo. It didn't make sense. How could he be certain that she would need chemo when she hadn't even had a bone marrow biopsy? I don't think sort of blindly following your doctor, if it seems like their diagnosis is off, is like a great move. I also don't think just totally ignoring your doctor because you know your body and just blowing it off is that great a move either. (laughs) Because there's plenty of things that you can get, cancer being one of them, and, and not really realize it at first. Hmm. So the decision-making there seemed a little questionable. And then the fact that she's kind of put forth as sort of a story of somebody, like I am sympathetic to her, but I'm not sure the choices she made were all that awesome. You mean like spending all of her money and going to a huge amount of debt, bringing all of her family members to Disney World and stuff? You don't think that was a good idea? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's similar to like when people like think the world's going to end on a certain day. And, right. You know, you, you blow everything off and then the world doesn't end. You're like, oh, f- fuck, I'm out of money. So that was a weird story. And I thought there was a pretty easy solution to the whole thing that for some reason she didn't take. Now, Kevin, you got a second opinion when you thought you had a cancer diagnosis, right? I mean, yeah. you went to like three. I mean, that that's what happened. I'm not, I'm not, by the way, I'm not victim blaming any of these people. But my issue. But with the- I know if you remember, you were in the room, too, yeah, yeah. that you're like, oh, so, you know, well, there's an uncertainty here. Right. What makes sense? Right. And it's kind of it, you're kind of going on your gut, and it's a, it's an emotional thing. So I can I can see why people, you know, like well, especially when we hear that Doctor uh, Fata would, you know, sort of berate them, say, "Oh, you went to medical school. Oh, well, I went. I had my Sloan Fellowship, and you know, would really kind of like make people feel silly or stupid for questioning him." Hmm. Um, but I also found it, I don't want to say I found it weird, but I was also trying to get wrap my head around sort of at the end when the FBI is going to like all these patients and telling them, I'm sorry, you didn't have cancer, and that they were devastated that they didn't have cancer. Yeah. I mean, I guess I understand the emotion. Like, I went through all this other stuff. Yeah, chemo is no fucking joke. No, especially the way he's giving it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the one thing that I will say about- Especially if you're not really sick. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I'll say about Patty's story, I agree with Toby that maybe she wasn't the right person to kind of put in the center of the podcast. Because the other thing about her story that strikes me is that it's all told in retrospect. So- She's talking about all these doubts, all these feelings, all of these responses that other people had. Of course, now she knows what the real story was. And I mean, one of the questions I have was, if you felt this way, you kept going forward. And again, I'm not victim blaming, but it, it does speak to sort of the authority that, that you feel doctors have when you talk to a doctor. Right. Yep. There is sort of this this thing about, you know, I had a telemedicine appointment. I had two telemedicine appointments yesterday, one with my primary care physician my primary care physician could literally tell me anything and I'd probably be like, okay. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, there is sort of an authority you place on them in the moment. Patty was talking as though in the moment she didn't believe it, but it very clearly was influenced by what she knew happened later. So I wouldn't ne- necessarily have, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Patty. Maybe that wasn't the best character to pick for the center of the story. So I agree with with Toby on that. Question for you, Laura. What did you think about sort of the the part of the podcast where they talk about the very, very rapid Department of Justice investigation? Like George went to them like on a Friday or whatever. And by Monday, they were, you know, 
arresting Dr. Fada. What did you think about that? Well, I mean, how many times have we listened to something where we're so frustrated or watched something and heard about a case where things are dragged out for what seems like years because they don't have enough evidence and they won't move on something. So like even he described when he went in that room, he thought he was going to be meeting with like one or two people. And there was like 15 people in there with their notepads out. So You know, I think it spoke to the nature of the information that he had gathered that uh, if they were able to move that quickly, I mean, how many times have we seen like law enforcement really wait to take the step to take a step like this in a case? So he obviously had good information, enough information, and it was alarming enough to law enforcement that they felt like they could move that quickly. But I was like, like you guys were saying earlier, I was like, wait a minute. So it's over? Mm. Um, and now we're headed to court. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I you know, so it, it moved quickly, but, and it may have moved quickly in real life, I guess, for the purposes of the podcast, I wish that we had then backtracked and learned a little bit more about Dr. Fada, because I feel like that to me is the missing piece in all of this. See, I think that would have been a great way to start the whole podcast would be with that. Cause I thought there was a lot of drama in the um, the investigation, like when that kicked off. I jumped out. I'm still in my suit from the day before. I haven't slept. And I'm running over to put the handcuffs on this guy. And the, that first agent grabs it. Who's the case agent? And I'm like, that's me. He, he pulls Dr. Fada back and he's like, here you go. There isn't a lot of suspense or mystery, I think, in the telling of this podcast. That was a dramatic high point. I thought that would be a good way to start off. Or the nurse, I forget her name, but when she was doing this job shadow and she starts looking at all the medicine, like those were like two really great points. It could have been like the lead off, but I don't think it fixes sort of the rest of the problem with telling this story. It was told well, but it's not a fantastic story. Hmm. Well, on that note, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Dr. Death Season 2? Of course, Dr. Death Season 1 was a huge hit for the podcast production house Wondery. So, Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Season 2 of Dr. Death? I'm going to give this a thumbs up, though. It's not as enthusiastic a thumbs up as I have given other podcasts. But, you know, I'm going to say there's six episodes. We've heard four episodes. I know what episode five is because they teased it. And I'm hoping in episode six that they wrap up the storyline for the season. Because, you know, I felt like the storytelling style was compelling. It was easy to follow. For me, it was definitely rage-inducing to listen to what Dr. Fada was doing to his patients to make money. We had some really good voices in there. But the pieces that were missing were, I really felt like I didn't get to know Dr. Fada. I wanted to know more about his background. And I just feel like it ended so abruptly that there was more opportunity to sort of flesh this story out a bit. So I can't give it a thumbs down because I liked what I heard, but I feel like there's pieces missing to the story. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Dr. Death Season 2? You know, I'm going to give it a very moderate thumbs down. Um, And I think Laura, when she was just talking, really hits on like one of the big issues for me, which is you just never get much of a sense of Dr. Fada. Like he comes off as being kind of a jerk and, and, and sort of trying to intimidate people and, and greedy, but you, you don't really, I mean, there's a big Dr. Fada size hole in the middle of this podcast. You, <laughs> <laughs> you never, you never hear his voice. You don't really, you don't really know anything about his background other than the things that he kind of 
like uses to intimidate people with. But yeah, he, he's not, he's barely even a two dimensional character. So having him as the sort of antagonist that you're building this entire season around and him just being this blank slate, essentially, I, I think is another thing that kind of hamstrings it. It's not necessarily their fault if they couldn't dig anything up about him or get him on tape or, or do any of those things. But it is a fault in the listening and thinking experience of this podcast. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's 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 well put together. You know, the interviews that they have are, are interesting, but I just don't think the case is very interesting. And again, no Dr. Fada. So moderate thumbs down. Kevin Flynn. I'm also a mild thumbs down. Um, I kept trying to think, like, why isn't this clicking for me? What about it just isn't making this podcast sing? And I'd say, well... What they really need is this, but um, but they have that, and what they should have somebody who's doing, but they have that, and I hope they don't do much, and they didn't do that, and it just, I don't know why this didn't come together better, other than to say, I just think that the mistake was picking this case. Yes, it's big, and a lot of people were affected, but as far as a storytelling device, nothing happens really it goes on a straight line he did something bad and he kept doing it and kept doing it until he got caught right this isn't somebody who like oh and then halfway through it he you know he he uh, he, he murders somebody to shut them up and runs off to geneva i mean i mean obviously it's nonfiction and that just didn't happen but it just seemed like the kind of case where you know it just was it just was the fatal mistake that a lot of podcasts make that they pick a nonfiction story to tell that really just isn't that terribly interesting no matter how important it is you know for every great wondery podcast like a dr death or a dirty john or gladiator there's a really mediocre wondery podcast like man in the window or bunga bunga or guru and it's like they're not this hbo of podcasts they're the stephen king of podcasts for every green mile there's a cat's eye you know for every shining there's maximum overdrive it's just uh i really wanted to like this i think the host laura beale you know does a good job there's really no flaws with the way it's put together but i just don't think there's a you know there's just enough here so mild thumbs down so i'm also a thumbs down probably less mild uh than you guys so here's my issue. Um, even with the case that they chose, there are interesting ways to tell a story that have to do with, you know, the order in which you tell it, for instance, or the angle that you go with, for instance, or the character that it's framed around, for instance. I am becoming increasingly frustrated with the product that is these Wondery podcasts. They all sound the same to me. They are fine. Like if this podcast was made by somebody in their basement, I'd be like, oh, this is pretty good for somebody in their basement. This is substantively worse than Dr. Death season one, worse than Dirty John, worse than many other Wondery podcasts we've listened to in terms of like content, style, production, etc. It's fine but it is soulless. It lacks, when you talk about it not clicking, what, what clicks is that there's never a reason for you. You've, you're never invited into the story. You, the listener, Kevin, are never, like, there's never a moment where it's like, here's why this should matter to you. They never make that connection. They never talk, for instance, about, you know, when you walk into your doctor's office, they could tell you anything and you would believe them because we are all conditioned to believe that these people have authority and they have so much power in our lives. 
I'm not saying they need to be ham-fisted, but they never draw the connections that make you care, aside from caring about the victims. Um, and that's just not enough for me. So for that reason, for the soullessness of it, for sort of the sort of packaged, slick, glossy, boring wonderiness of it, uh, I have to give it a thumbs down. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All right, Kevin, now it's time for the business ba-da, music. Ba-da. Oh, I, I, wait, I jumped. Okay, now. Ba-da, ba-da. <laughs> the business music business section. Kevin, what have we got going on on our Patreon feed right now? Well, right now in your feed is the Crime Writers on After Show. We're going to be talking about Wondery. Oh, oh, are you going to finally explain to me what the hell the scandal is that I keep reading about that I do not understand? About the CEO, Hernan Lopez, yes. and the bribery charges he's facing, yes. plus Apple and a bunch of other big-name suitors are looking to buy Wondery. The asking price is $400 million, or about three treatments at uh, Dr. Death <laughs> Season 2. Uh, we also have Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club. They just talked about Just Mercy. Mm. Toby, uh, it's been out for a week now. Tell us about uh, your podcast episode. Uh, so I'm joined by Dr. Shiloh of LA Not So Confidential and Rabia Chaudhry and uh, Janet Varney. And we talk about Just Mercy, which is about Brian Stevenson. It's written by Brian Stevenson as well, uh, about his work uh, primarily in Alabama, working with largely people who are on death row in cases where either there seem like there are very extenuating circumstances or the person is actually innocent. Uh, also gets into juveniles who are put in life life in prison without possibility of parole, things like that. Uh, you know, it was a mega, mega bestseller, uh, won all the awards and top 10 lists and all that stuff. Movie, right? It wasn't uh, Michael, Michael B. B. Jordan. Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't see the movie, but um, anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a really good book. And obviously with that group of guests, um, super interesting conversation. So hopefully people will check it out. I'll spoil it. The panel um, was troubled by what they read. Oh, yeah. really? Yes. yes. Mm. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not the barrel of laughs you think it's going to be. <laughs> huh. Kevin? It wasn't the bling ring. <laughs> no. What else have we got going on in our Patreon? And lastly, we have a new episode coming up of Mary with Podcast Post-Election Edition. Are we going to be dispensing really good advice for couples who are so stressed that like, the husband won't let their wife watch the news? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what about if the wife watches the news in secret? What if the wife is so troubled by the news <laughs> that she instead decides to watch a born movie with commercials on the TNT network because it's less stressful. It's less stressful to watch Matt Damon stab somebody in the eye with a pencil than it is to watch the news. <laughs> then I would recommend doing that. All right. So, Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Linda Hagen Brantz and Cindy Pesca. Praise be. Ooh, you changed it. 
Used to be bless you. Now it's praise be. Praise be. Are you like, is this, is this because it's turning in The Handmaid's Tale in our real lives? Is that why? <laughs> Just want to keep it fresh. Blessed babe. be the fruit. Just keeping it fresh. Off <laughs> Kevin. Off Kevin. <laughs> well, Linda and Cindy, thank you for supporting the show and getting all of this extra content on Patreon. Uh, we love all of our patrons. And if you would like to join them and get four extra podcasts in addition to just feeling really good for supporting our little basement-based podcast How about company? the 150 exclusive podcasts we have behind the firewall? Yeah, there. we there's tons of podcasts back there. And by the way, Apple is not knocking at our door to buy us for $500 yeah, million. Dollars. So every $5 a month patron helps. Please join us at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And thus ends the business section. Is the music fading out, Kevin? It's fading out. Moving on. Maybe I went to medical school or became a psychiatrist in part to learn about why. Don't you ever wonder why you don't murder? Dr. Dorothy Otnell Lewis set about to learn the psychology and psychiatry of violent criminals. Her early work with juveniles resulted in an unexpected finding real evidence of the long-dismissed diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder, previously known as multiple personality disorder. Also, Nancy kept a diary. Her different personas had different handwriting, different spelling. Over her long career, Lewis became an expert in the defense of criminals with dissociative identity disorders. Among her subjects were Johnny Frank Garrett, Ted Bundy, and Arthur Shawcross. While recognized as a pioneer in criminal psychology, her work in the profession is often rejected. Do you buy the whole idea of multiple personality disorder? No, (laughs) I think it's a hoax. From famed documentarian Alex Gibney comes Crazy, Not Insane, a look at Dr. Lewis's career and the controversy around violent offenders with multiple personalities. Crazy, Not Insane premieres this week on HBO. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for Crazy, Not Insane. So to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Now, Toby, there are other documentaries on networks about basically people who get to interview or I say get to as if it's some sort of like privilege that we're all lining up for, but who interview uh, criminals. Obviously, fictionally, we've watched Mindhunter, but there's also a lot of just like like killer confessions type shows out there. This one is very different Uh, and it sets up with with Dorothy, who is this incredibly relatable, very, very bright uh, woman who's just hanging out with her son while he's reading through her book pages. What do you think of the general approach that this documentary takes, Toby, to this subject that feels very well trodden? Well, I have I avoid those conversation with a killer programs like The Plague. I don't think I've ever watched one. And so I don't I can't really compare it to that. I It's interesting as a portrait of her and the work that she did. And I've got kind of mixed feelings about what she actually, like what she's actually pushing, like her theories. Like, I think the stuff about, you know, brain damage that she shows for people getting into accidents or, or are, you know, horrifically abused as children, that sort of scientific stuff seems pretty well grounded. When it gets to the, you know, what she calls the multiples, the dissociative multiple personality disorder or or whatever it's technically called, you know, I think that's on a little thinner ice. 
as far as I'm concerned, and it seems to almost sort of veer into kind of almost philosophy at, at a point rather than than science. So when she claims, or the documentary seems to claim that she's she's getting evidence about this, it doesn't seem like super strong to me. Hmm. And and that's what they really focus on, right? Is is this idea of multiples and these examples that you get of them. Lara, what did you think about Dorothy and the and the sort of approach the film takes to this character study wrapping this, you know, conversations with killers narrative that I agree with Toby is is kind of gross. I kind of avoid that kind of programming too. But this is really different, right? Mhm. Hey, I've lived that program, Rebecca. Um <laughs> So, yeah, you know, the thing about Dorothy and and it sort of for me tied into my perception of the people that were having these different personalities emerge in her videos was that she comes across, she's like the Tweety Bird grandmother. She is like so good natured. (laughs) She's like so sweet. She's like this little petite like woman and she just doesn't seem like the type of person that has been out spending all this time with serial killers and murderers. And, you know, her whole personality as she's talking about it even is sometimes just so light. I mean, she makes jokes and and I can't say I don't make jokes. And like I live with a paramedic. We definitely have gallows humor because that's how you deal with things. But she just had this, I felt like she still had a sort of innocence about her. So at times it made me wonder, like the flip side of this, of aside from the one guy that we saw that was so clearly opposed to anything that she said, like, what's the, what's the other flip side with somebody that's a little bit more moderate in her profession talking about this particular diagnosis? Because... She did come across, and I, I, and I'm. Sh- she's very smart. She's very bright. She's very well educated. But, I mean, did she come across a little bit naive to you, or is it just that we only saw the videos where she had proof, and we didn't see any videos of people that she said no, they're full of shit. So that yeah. that was the thing. Is like I, I'm like if I saw like the contrast, it would have felt a little different to me. I think. Hmm. See, I, I don't see uh, innocence and naivete. What I see is openness and great emotional intelligence and curiosity. And, you know, Kevin, Laura and Toby both made the point that, you know, we only see cases where she is sure that this condition was present. You know, I think the Ted Bundy thing is a little bit more out there. It's just more what's more supposition. Um, but what did you think of that approach? I mean, it, it's not like I'm certain she doesn't walk down the street and think everybody she runs into has DID, right? No, but like, you know, if you're the expert in this and people are calling you in to look at this particular criminal because they suspect that, I, I mean, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail, right? So you know, I wish that there was a little more pushback from the documentarians from Alex Gibney, who we all love, but, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily his best work. I wish there was just sort of a little more pushback on the psychology behind this and the veracity of all this, because other than, you know, the one guy who, like, was the the dueling uh, expert witness at the Shawcross trial, there really isn't a lot of other talk about whether or not she's any good at this, other than she is just finding a lot of people like this. And I also don't know if this this documentary is about her or about the work. So I'm going to really push back hard. You are? Right All now. right. Are you ready? Yeah. 
She's a fucking teacher at Yale. Right. And she had the lead, the world's leading clinic on this at Bellevue Hospital in New York. She is good at this. And I think you would not be asking that question if she was a man. I'm not calling you sexist. Well, no, I would but, definitely still be calling this in question if she were a man. There is sexism present in the documentary with her peers. You see, and, and, they, and they, they don't point to it in a, an overt way, but you see the photo of her in medical school where she is the only woman in that photo. And it is very clear that throughout her career, she's questioned more, I think, than a male doing the research she's doing would be questioned. I'm but not saying... We, that, that dentist did not have to be a woman for us to say, well, I think that's that true. His, except, his methods are a little suspect. he's a liar who was not good at his job, and she is good at her I, job. I, And I will tell you, maybe I'm coming at this a little differently for a very specific reason. Okay, well, you're going to have to explain the why you are, though. Okay, I'm going to disclose something now, and I have to be very vague, because I do not want to violate anybody's privacy, but anybody who knows me from my college years will be able to write in and confirm that this is true. I went to college with somebody with dissociative identity disorder. I would say that before that experience... And this is somebody who I became very close with on a number of levels, uh, who I performed in a performing group with, who I spent a great deal of time with. I would say before that experience, I might be asking in a documentary like this for more pushback, too. But having experienced it firsthand and having known somebody very, very well with this disorder, I find it, frankly, uh, not with you guys, but in the film... I, I sort of find it offensive I, that people write it off. I, I am not questioning whether or not this is a real disorder. Yeah, no. I am questioning whether or not she is appropriately applying it in these cases. Okay. Because I would guess that you would say, you knew that your friend had DID, well, right? she told us, yeah. Right, but you would know that. But some of these people is a murderer, and you're like, after, we're, after the fact, you're like, oh, they had this. It might take a little more than just her saying so mm. to deliver that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. And my pushback on you, I just to be clear, was not about you. It was sort of about the it people the in the movie. It was the patriarchy? No. <laughs> that was a cheap shot. I didn't mean it to be a cheap shot, Kevin. Um, so, Laura, one of the things that we see in the film is a lot of footage of Dorothy interviewing very, very violent killers. And, you know, at one point, there's a guy who, you know, is basically demonstrating how he murdered somebody in front of her. And she's talking us through the tape. I don't think she's watching it while she's talking about it, but she's remembering being there and talking about him raising his fist against her. We see this, again, fictionalized in Mindhunter. But what do you think about seeing these these real-life tapes? Well, I thought the tapes were, that was what I think probably sold this documentary when they were like talking about doing it was like, she's like, well, I have these tapes and we can use them and we have permission to use them because they've been used in court. So that was, I mean, I, so I found this whole documentary just fascinating to watch these tapes when first we had Shawcross and we're watching him and then all of a sudden he sort of morphs into, was his mom like Betty you know, and then we had the person who actually changed during the trial in front of the judge and convinced the judge of what was going on. That was really interesting because I think that's sort of for those of us that have like that bullshit meter going on. When we watch that, you're like, well, this is pretty interesting. But I have to, can we, as we're talking about the morphing in the, in the tapes and everything, one of the ones that's st- like, 
What the hell? Eating the raw vagina? <laughs> yes. Take that, Sister Catherine. Oh, my God. It was like a raw, yes. a raw rabbit? What? Oh, my God. That guy was I like fucked up. Blind taste test. Yes. She said something like, not everyone has a taste for that. So speak for yourself. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, just, just, I mean, I, I, I do want to talk to your guys' skepticism because I actually, I get it now. And I'm sorry, Kevin, for like pushing back you. So you're saying that like these people might be bullshitting their DID. I'm saying that this seems to be like an awful lot of possibility for suggestion. I think it is a sad fact that people in my profession were so eager to find something that they did a form of interviewing that can cause vulnerable people to believe they have more than one personality. Okay. A couple examples is that it looks like in the Shawcross case that, yeah, there might be some quasi-hypnosis here but like as like as evidence they show like the guy raises his hand and like pantomime as his mother personality stabbing somebody from like their neck down to their their crotch and said later said well he actually did that did you hurt any of the girls i hurt all of them so how come he confessed to all of that stuff if you did it he does everything i don't do if he knew that, then yeah, it wasn't like yeah, a hidden thing. Yeah, yeah. And that one guy at the the psych hospital, who one personality said Robert De Niro's going to come over. Oh my god, that was bananas! He said, "Oh, I don't, I never saw Raging Bull." And then later on, the next personality says, "I loved you in Raging Bull." It's like you just gave him that information. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it just seems like you know the exception being the children. I don't know. I guess children could also sort of be manipulated in a, a way that, uh, that is not meant to be. But we see the same thing with false confessions, with police officers feeding little things. I don't know. That was my sort of doubt was like, wait a minute. Couldn't that be the thing? Because it's high stakes in those situations where someone might get a different sentence if they get diagnosed. They may this. want people to right. think that right. or they might but the, be but pushed into that. There's yeah. no reason for children to want someone to think this. I mean, this is like the purest example of a DID patient is a child because it happens in childhood with a tremendous trauma. It's always what happens because you dissociate to cope with the trauma and then that personality sort of Gels. I think a lot of people dissociate in a to protect themselves, not right. not in you know a permanent disorder kind of thing. But it's a very seems like a very natural coping mechanism. I feel like Toby wants to say something. What do you got, Toby? So one of my frustrations is you sort of get these examples, right? But there's no there's no real explanation about what's going on. It's just something terrible happens to them. They dissociate. They get they get multiple personalities. And, and here, check it out. And I wish I'd done a little bit more sort of contextualizing that because it seems to me that there, and I, I, I know nothing about this. I'm just basing this on what, I, what we watched and just thinking about it, but that there, there's kind of like a continuum, right? Of where, I mean, how many times do you do things that are out of character and you're like, whoa, that wasn't me. Um, for me, it's like when I play sports, I am combative. I am a jerk. I'm like a completely different personality. As a matter of fact, when I play sports with my friends for the first time, they're like, oh my God, I didn't realize you could be such a prick. Oh, um, we did. We well, yeah, but we I, do. Yeah, of course, you, got, you guys know me really well, though. Um, <laughs> so it feels like you've got this kind of continuum about how consistent you are in your personality and in your own sense of your personality. And then the second part of it is, like we generally sort of talk about our personalities using metaphors. 
and this is really clear for me when Bundy's talking about, you know, she talks about the entity or whatever. And it's like, I think he's talking metaphorically. Like, I think he's just saying, like, I get this mood comes over me and I can't stop it and I have to go and do something. But then my question is, is this whole DID, is that taking these sort of natural things to the point where it's a pathology? In the documentary, you don't get any theory about how it works. Nobody explains or even tries to explain or give an example of what exactly is going on when somebody appears to be switching from one personality to another, you know, and that they don't remember what the other one does. Well, some some of them do remember what yep. some of them do, and then others don't know what the other one does. So what's going on there? And is that really multiple personalities? Or is that just a, an extremely segmented, differentiated single personality who's having to deal with different situations in different ways. Like I coming into it without much knowledge about it, none of those questions are even begun to be addressed. It's basically this occurs, here are some examples. Oh, by the way, I think that might have been the case with Ted Bundy too. Hmm. The end. Well there is sort of a trust that you are supposed to place in her because of the way that she's portrayed in the documentary. I mean, she is truly credible, truly warm, truly empathetic, and a great writer, by the way. Her writing is like, mwah, super good. Uh, when you sort of hear the reading of her book, I really enjoyed it anyway. Um, and I think that sort of the case here with Alex Gibney and his his look at her is she's taking us by the hand and we are supposed to, to trust. I'm not sure this is a documentary where we are supposed to be like, yeah, but maybe you're full of shit. I, I just don't feel like it was framed that way. And I think that is okay in this instance because she is talking about something that that people doubt. But I do want to talk about one part of the documentary where we do get to meet a character who's a little bit more concrete. This kind of gets into the discussion about whether or not people who do horrible things, if there's a reason like uh, abuse, like a psychiatric disorder, or if some people are just pure evil, which is another thing that a lot of people believe to be true. And that introduces us, that section of the documentary, to a man named Sam Jones, an electrician turned executioner who really is something else. How do you feel about executing kids? I don't feel a damn thing. You don't think it matters? How many people use IQQ? Now I had met someone who told me he had no qualms about killing anyone, man, woman, or child. Laura, what do you think of Sam Jones and the way he's portrayed in this documentary? This was bizarre. Um, And I'm assuming that the reason they went to talk to him, because they were talking to people to study how people could do something like this or something. I'm sure there was some reason that they were there. But, I mean, the scene is bizarre. So they're in his, it looks like, trailer. RV kind of situation with their like old Milwaukee and he's just like totally no big deal about the fact that a there's a job for somebody to be a traveling executioner he just goes and presses a button it's Texas man I'm like my god I had no, like there's a thing for this I, I had no idea and nice work if you can get it <laughs> yeah. so we get that going on and then B that he acts like he's totally non-disturbed 
But then he brings out the paintings that he makes afterwards. And I'm like, what the hell is this? I mean, it was the most disturbing looking paintings. It was like, you know, if they were giving people like those tests where they're like, look at the ink spot. What do you see? Or the draw something. Yeah. yeah. And like, oh, no. And then there here's like, what do you see when you see this guy's paintings? Psycho. Um, so I don't know. But that was really interesting because I think what she was trying to get at was that this is a personality that kills that has found an outlet for it where it's acceptable to do what they're doing. And how does that person function in society when they're given a job to kill when clearly it's, you know, something that they want to do? Because I can't imagine somebody without some sort of mental health issue, psychosis, being okay with that. But, <laughs> I mean, but is he Dexter? Yeah. I mean, like, he's like really a killer he's, who was going to kill people anyway, and this was... Yeah. But is that fair? I mean, is that proven? It's just sort of... I don't know. It's a really interesting side it's trip. It's amorphous, yeah. Is it that he's been doing this and that that's what makes him want to paint crazy paintings? It's It was really interesting, but there was zero context to it and zero conclusions drawn by the experts. So I was like... That's really interesting, but what the actual fuck? I I feel like differently about it. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, I mean, I don't. You know, I guess it's it's sort of a chicken egg thing. It's like was he was he damaged to the point where he would paint things like that, even if he wasn't executing people, or does the fact that he's executing people cause him to do those paintings, which seem like a kind of release after he's done with the execution? But I do think, as I've said before, I I think execution is barbaric, and I think it reflects tremendously badly on our society. And I think that the fact that a person who is clearly damaged, like Sam Jones, is the guy who's the executioner. Yeah. Like, we're calling on that guy. We're not calling on some guy who's who, you know, is successful or some guy who doesn't have demons. We're getting this guy who lives in a trailer park, who does paintings that show intense internal turmoil. And he's the guy who travels around and represents the state in these executions. Like, in some ways, I was like, you could just do a documentary about this guy as an indictment about our capital punishment system. And and he seems, he sort of pretends like he's untroubled by it. But, you know, the whole execution infrastructure is around trying to insulate the people who are actually committing the executions from being very hands-on. And that's like one of the arguments against lethal injection is that somebody's actually got to put the needle in the arm. But does he have multiple personalities? And if not, why is he in this documentary? Well, I mean, I think it's about, I think it's about those other issues about, you know, people who kill, like even in a state sanctioned way, does that involve mental illness? Can you be a well-adjusted mass murderer? Even if the state's saying it's fine, we want you to do it. We'll actually pay you to do it. I, I think that's where she was coming at. And it's also kind of, they kind of tease this idea about thinking about, is there such a thing as evil or is it really conditions create situations in which people act in ways that we describe as evil? And so I think he's like, he's an instance that kind of pushes all those things a little bit because, you know, he's murdering, which we think is evil, but then he's doing it in the States, like basically asking him to do it, which is that a mitigating factor? And then, 
there's a whole lot of interesting stuff going on with him, which I don't think they really get into very much. But I found that to be interesting in a way that some of the other stuff I didn't think was as interesting. No, I, I agree. I mean, this is the only killer that she interviews that isn't in prison, right? So this is the person who's living in the world doing these acts and doesn't care. It's not like he's the executioner and he feels bad about it. He wears it on his sleeve that he doesn't feel bad about it, which is exactly how some of the people who are behind bars uh, behave when she talks to them. I mean, the one thing that I think is so interesting about this documentary is the separation of the psychiatry and the illness from the act. Because there, yeah. there are so many times where she's in a position where she's advocating for a killer and their psychiatry that she's like, you know, she's diagnosed them. She knows that they're they're damaged, they're troubled, they're in pain and they're sick. But she's not saying they should be out because they will kill people if they're put out. And I, I and I think that this this guy is the opposite side of that coin. Like he shouldn't be in the world untroubled by killing people and yet he is it's literally his job he's not a criminal well not not legally a criminal no that's what that means but is he he's mor- not a criminal but is he morally a, you know is he like but that's the thing is he damaged or is he evil that i mean to me it raised those questions i found that part of the documentary super fascinating okay qu- quick well one last question for all of you before we give our reviews uh yes or no Ted Bundy, full of shit with Dorothy, just like he's full of shit with everyone else? Or is she on to something with Ted Bundy that we haven't seen previously? Laura, what do you think? I think he's full of shit, but I was intrigued by the grandfather father <laughs> angle. So fucked up. <laughs> I never heard that before. What about you, Toby? Ted Bundy, full of shit? Or is there something more there that has gone unexplored? That was a real stretch, I thought. Yeah. Kevin? No, I think Ted Bundy was fucking with her. Yeah. He was always looking for an angle. But yeah. why, why did, I, I'm curious, though, why do you think he lied about his perfect childhood all the time and when he clearly had very much the opposite of a fucking perfect childhood? I don't know, but it doesn't really seem to be a lot of evidence that he had multiple personalities. Mm. You know? Self-mythologizing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? I mean, I think it, I think it is. Like, I'm, I, I'm the exception. I'm exceptional. Uh, you know, all these other people had shitty childhoods. Not me. I had an awesome childhood. I'm still a mass murderer. That's very Ted Bundy. Before we go spoiler free, I just want to say, I think the one thing that where the disservice was done was certainly in that Shawcross trial where they decoupled this idea about the physical damage to the brain and how that's coupled with the DID and that it just ended up at that trial, just ended up, okay, well, just talk about how he's crazy and not, and that whole idea that, it's it happens in correlation with brain damage, with physical damage. That sort of gets lost, and I think that that if it could be portrayed in the public, and certainly in this documentary more, as sort of being these two things working together, yeah, it might go a long way towards public acceptance of you know, oh no, they're just crazy people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but that that's her partner, the neurologist that yeah. we see her doing that awkward interview with where they're sitting side by side in that really <laughs> weird way. Like that, that Why was... are you making us sit like this, Diane Sawyer? But Kevin, we've heard it even on like Law & Order about brain damage and serial killers, right? Right. It came from her. It came from this team of people. This is where it came from. That's what's so interesting to me. I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the Alex Gibney documentary, Crazy Not Insane on HBO? It's a very interesting look at the long career of a psychiatrist who studies killers. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Crazy Not Insane? I'm I'm going with thumbs up. I mean, obviously, there's there's angles I wish they had explored further in this documentary, but I thought it was really fascinating. I mean, it was like like an hour and a half long. 
And it was really interesting just because of the historical footage and videos they had of her actually interviewing people. And that in itself kept me watching this. I was just absolutely fascinated by the videos of her interviewing serial killers. She's a really interesting character. I kind of wish she was my neighbor so I could go chit chat with her. (laughs) And um, I would say, you know, there's things I would have done differently. But overall, I think it was a really interesting documentary. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Crazy Not Insane? This is kind of a tough one for me. I don't have the stomach for some of this stuff that I think Laura does. And I found some of the the tape of these serial killers, you know, the most damaged people in these moments of sort of like intense distress. I have a hard time watching that stuff. You know, I think the, the, the story of Dorothy is interesting and how she pushes the field along and her theories. Uh, I wish they could have gone a little deeper into some of that stuff. I, I guess I'm kind of a thumbs down, which kind of surprises me for an Alex Gibney. But I think of, of all the things I've watched of his, this was definitely sort of the weakest. And it, it checks a lot of boxes of things that I don't really value in documentaries. Uh, and for that reason, I guess I'm a thumbs down. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm, I'm a mild thumbs down again. Uh, I think that if you have an affinity for this kind of area of criminal justice, that you'll like it. And if you've got two hours on a Saturday and you want to kill it with something, I'd say kill it with something else. But if you do it this, you know, it's fine. Let's remind people who Alex Gibney is. He directed The Inventor, which was the Theranos documentary, Going Clear, wow, uh, Going Clear. Citizen, uh, Client Nine. That's the Elliot Spitzer one. Uh, you know, he, he's got great, great stuff. And he's super nice. I interviewed him for Netflix's podcast. He's so nice. Yeah. So think about that when you're about to give him okay. your thumbs down, Kevin. <laughs> I just don't know what I'm supposed to think really about this documentary. Some documentaries you go and you say, hmm, this was the point and what do I think about that? And when I finish this one, I'm more like, Am I supposed to think about something about this? Am I supposed to be thinking one thing or another? Am I supposed to be pondering something? I don't know. It felt kind of flat. I just think that it, uh, I mean, the visuals were great. I'll just say that. The visuals were great. Fantastic thing. No hackneyed uh, drone shots or reenactments. A lot of the uh, cartoon charcoal stuff was fantastic, but that's, that's about it for me. Uh, I really like this documentary. I will say the one thing that made me uncomfortable about it with Toby is the video footage of very clearly very ill people in real distress and also describing very violent acts they committed. I do feel like, and this is something that's a big conversation in journalism right now, is about the fact that someone like that really can't consent. And, you know, it's one thing for that video to be a part of the evidence in their criminal case or of their defense. And there's another thing for it to be in a documentary years later and a thing that they can't consent to being in. So some of that footage made me a little bit uncomfortable. That being said, I think you, Kevin, and you, Toby, are like being way too uh, thoughtful about this. This, for me, was just a very interesting portrait of a pioneering woman in a field that nobody thought was valuable. And she was the first to do it. And she really kind of invented this way of looking at these criminals that really turned the criminal justice system on its head. Before her, uh, it was just evil versus good. 
after her. I mean, Dr. Wong on SVU wouldn't exist without her work. A lot of what we see in pop culture and a lot of what we see in criminal trials where there's empathy built around mitigating circumstances around people who commit unspeakable acts was because of her work. So I just see it as a really compelling personal portrait. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very entertaining, beautifully shot. I love the recreations. They're done through the drawing. So big thumbs up for me. You wouldn't feel that way if she was a man. (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe yeah. not. You need to get out more. No, it's fair. Maybe I wouldn't. No, that's no, honestly I'm just, very fair. I'm just kidding. I'm just Maybe kidding. I wouldn't. All right. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the week. The week. The hottest commodity at the recent China International Import Expo came from a coffee company from East Timor. They're selling Kopi Luwak, otherwise known as coffee made from beans, pooped out by civet cats. Ooh. Purveyors say the civet cats only eat the best parts of the coffee plant, so the beans they digest and excrete are the cream of the crop. It's also terribly expensive, going for about $3 a gram. While Kopi Lawak is a favorite of high-end connoisseurs in Indonesia and Vietnam, the company is trying to make an inroads in China where tea is the popular drink. But with the right amount of exposure, their market share could grow. That would mean the company could hire more people... Because someone has to do all that shit work. So, Pamela, oh. here's my question for you. Civet Cat Poop Coffee could someday be coming to the States. How could they market to American consumers? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Well, even this crazy cat lady would not drink that shit. I don't know. Oh. I, I can't do it. <laughs> you don't drink the shit. You drink the beans in the shit. I would market it to, like, dog owners because Buddy the dog recently has developed a little habit of going down into the cat litter box because he likes kitten poop. I don't know. I mean, does it have, like, high iron content or something? Like, is it a superfood? I mean, that's the only way I could think to market it, but I'm not drinking it. Toya Ball, how do you think this could be marketed in the States? Well, you, you do it in a little gift box with... With the uh, with the shampoo with the argon oil, <laughs> <laughs> because that's from those you know whatever they are nuts or whatever that are eaten by those goats that climb trees and then yes. shit it out. Yes. So it's the the shit box. Kevin Flynn, what do you think? Uh, I think you uh, package it and say, and the motto is. It's still better than Sanka. <laughs> oh, Sanka. I mean, it's pretty obvious to me. Two words. Gwyneth Paltrow, right? Oh, right. <laughs> Every wellness shaman, like, crook in America could so easily sell this by, like, put, putting it right next to their stupid essential oils or crystals or whatever. But, yes, Gwyneth Paltrow could definitely get it the done. The could be cock full of nuts. <laughs> hey, so the, the other day I was, I was getting on a Zoom call with... Uh, one of our research assistants, and she was like rolling her face with a oh yeah jade with a jade thing. roller yeah yeah what's that what does that do well it's supposed to like I don't know like stimulate the I don't know what the jade did part a cat is. poop that out but I, I have that that is a thing I have one that's metal that I keep in the freezer that we actually got in a FabFit Fun box right. It just sort of like gets rid of puffiness and like invigorates your skin. I don't know. I kind of like it. Yeah, could be worse. That Zoom call could have been with Jeffrey Tubin. That's true. It's, it's like, is that a jade face roller? Or are you just happy I to see me? I also interviewed for the Netflix podcast. Oh, no. Luckily, that was just audio, and he was very nice in that interview. I'm anyway, sure he's a very was he relaxed? Nice man. Oh, God. 
<laughs> Did he answer yes, yes, yes? <laughs> he stood right at attention when I asked him those questions. Oh, God. God. <laughs> oh, God. All right, Laura Bricker, we should probably end on, on that note. But before we do, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> We, we have a cat of the week this week. I, I have to just recover from that last episode. Um, so this is actually a New Hampshire cat, but I was alerted to it initially by our listener in Dayton, Ohio, Kelly Gears, who wanted to let me know about Marty, the Mount Washington Observatory mascot oh, cat. Yes. R.I.P. Marty. Marty. <laughs> now, the Mount Washington Observatory, the highest mountain there, they always have a cat. And when my son was little, we had the cat Cat in the Clouds book about the last cat that lived there, Nin, um, who was like 18 years old and passed away back in 2009. So there is now, I think, currently a contest underway to decide which cat will replace Marty. Hmm. If that cat were murdered, I think Laura would have her first book. Well, the good news is Laura... That's <laughs> Laura Breaker, Cat Detective on top of Mount Washington. If you read the story at NHPR.org, by the way, you'll see that there's lots of cats at the top of Mount Washington, but that was the main one. That was the coolest... Uh, and it was also a Maine Coon cat, and they are apparently looking for another cat now. The public can maybe help out with They're that. They're auditioning for new cats. They're auditioning yes. with the local Humane Society up in Conway. So, vote. And the cats who don't get picked, what happens to them? <laughs> they come to my catio <laughs> at my house. Laura, you could adopt so many more cats. All right. Well, we should definitely end it on that note. Laura Bricker, if folks want to reach out to you and maybe foist their poorly behaved cats off on you to live in your catio, how can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toy Ball, folks want to reach out to you on Twitter and challenge you to some sports ball so that they can see your dark side. How can they find you? Uh, at Toby Ball NH. And Kevin, if folks want to just say hi to you, how can they do that? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. Plus, I encourage you to join our amazing community. It really is amazing. In the official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group, we're there. Our listeners are there. Our Patreon patron saints are there. You can talk to us in person virtually on that Facebook group. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the after show right now. Plus, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by the awesome Ty Gibbons. Our line editors are Olivia Burdett and the very handsome Henry Lavoie. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where the coffee we drink is shitty enough already. Yeah. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On Why is the- you say that a little more excited? You're like, uh... I'm anxious. Put a fucking gun in your head. I'm fucking anxious, Kevin. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. <sighs> I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On! How's that? That's good. Hysteria Woo! is good. Yeah. <laughs> Catches the zeitgeist. Yeah. I think I could actually hear you peeing. Oh, no. <laughs> Partners in Crime Media. Media.